Hello, this is Dr. Lee McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I'm joined today by Dr. Katherine Walker, who is the Senior Clinical and Scientific Director of Palliative Care with MedStar Health in Baltimore and Washington, D.C. She's also an Associate Professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, and she is my speaking partner for speed dating with the pharmacy ladies that we've done for several years in a row at the Academy meeting. How are you today, Ms. Kat? I'm doing well. Happy to be here. Thanks for having oh, me. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. So shall we share the love and do a few speed dating tips for our studio audience here? I think so. I think we've picked some of our favorites. So let's go. We, okay. You kick us off. Okay. The first one is lidoderm patches. And uh, we talked a little bit about this at the Academy meeting as being kind of a newcomer on the market, on OTC market anyway, because we're used to lidoderm patches. Um, now there's an OTC option of lidocaine patches. So Salon Paws, Lidocare, and Aspercream um, looks like they have the same directions of re- removing after a couple hours, but we know from lidoderm patches that you can keep them on for 24 hours at a time um, and replace daily. And you actually use yours for multiple days, don't you then? Mm-hmm, because there's 700 milligrams in that patch, so uh, often we'll let the patient wear it for three days straight before we switch to a new patch. It's a big cost savings. That's right. So we're not sure what the deal is with the OTCs. There's not a lot of data out there yet, but I'm sure it will be coming. Um, so something to keep, um, just keep our eyes out for. It might be a cheaper alternative. Um, we'll see. It looks like there's it's about $2 a, chat, a patch. So at this point, not a lot cheaper, but uh, the jury's still out. And we know with lidoderm patches that um, studies that have replaced them daily instead of using them those 12 hours on or even every 12 hours for uh, continuous days showed that um, it did not get significant systemic concentrations. So one-seventh of the antiarrhythmic effect was seen um, and one-twenty-fifth of the toxic concentration was seen. So, um, so we'll see. It might be a new trick in our toolbox. The next one would be uh, topical capsation patch, keeping on the patch uh, tips here. And I think this is um, a, another decent option for local uh, pain relief. It has less burning than the cream, but remember it's um, you know still kind of a, a local um, place it at the site of ap- action type of patch. Um, so I think it's something that you know it can be useful. It seems to be um, helpful. And I think the case that we were talking about might be a good scenario to consider using it as, you know, say for instance, post-op, Uh, knee replacement, um, where you kind of, if you're taking an opioid, sometimes it's a little too much, um, and, you know, but then without it, you're still kind of in pain. This might be kind of a nice in-between. And then the next slide we have here, I mean, is just the Amazon reviews here. So, I mean, we say, if it's not on Amazon, who who needs it? And this is, um, you know, it's not quite Cochrane, but (laughs) there's a good, uh, good feedback here on Amazon to show us. Hey, if Amazon doesn't sell it, you don't need it. Am I right or what? You don't need it. I think if a day goes by and I don't spend money on Amazon, they may collapse. So luckily Uh, they're on very firm ground. You know, another patch that I have fallen dead in love with recently is I hurt my back recently, and I bought um, one of those thermal wraps. And they're supposed to last eight hours, but they actually lasted about 12 hours. It was pretty awesome. Have you ever tried one of those? No. Oh, I'm putting it on my list, though. Pretty sweet. Yeah, you're going to try to nab that for your tip for next year, aren't you? I know you. I, I, I got dipped on it. 
<laughs> All right, so a tip I'd like to share is blogs and pods and apps. Oh my, that's even hard to say. Some of my favorites. So I'm very fond of Palimed, P-A-L-L-I-M-E-D dot org. It's a blog all about hospice and palliative medicine. Um, I'm very fond of it. So the other thing is they sponsor hashtag HPM chat. Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. East Coast time, and uh, very enjoyable. So I just put this as a standing appointment in my calendar, and if I can make it, great. If I can't, that's okay, too. Um, But it's very enjoyable to talk to people all over the world at the same time. They have a theme each week. Um, It's very interesting. So uh, you have to be hip to Twitter. Another um, podcast and blog that I like is Jerry Pal. Uh, so Jerry, J-E-R-I-P-A-L dot org. Um, I had to laugh because in January they uh, uh, proclaimed a podcast with Dame Cicely Saunders, which I thought, boy, that's got to be a trick. Hasn't she been dead for like five or ten years? But uh, actually it was from a, an old recording, but it's pretty interesting, I think. And, of course, mm-hmm. I'm obscenely biased because I think the best podcast in the universe is this one, Palliative Care Chat. So uh, we we had some um, drama with our last two podcasts with that big study about delirium from Australia. Uh, we had one practitioner criticizing that trial, and then the principal investigator um, did a podcast with us, and she was explaining their methods and rationale and so forth. So very interesting. Um, some apps that are pretty interesting. The CDC has an app out now about the opioid prescribing guidelines that came out in 2016. So it's, it's pretty interesting. They give, some, they give summaries of each of the, the key points of the 12 recommendations, and they have for each of those an alternative treatment fact sheet. And another app I'm really crazy about now is called Drug-Drug Interactions in Opioid Therapy with a focus on buprenorphine and methadone. And boy, methadone wrote the book on drug interactions. It makes warfarin look like a big old sissy. So this is an excellent app to have handy. What do you think, Kat? Pretty good tips, right? We're going to have to do some tips on that next year for sure. Totally. Totally. I'm taking notes. Um, My next tip is for inhalers. We love tips on inhalers because, goodness gracious, there are so many issues with inhaler errors. And I think when you think about using inhalers correctly, there's, you know, lots of tips and giving written instructions and whatnot. But one thing that's really useful, you know, it's really hard for providers. There's new uh, inhaler devices coming on the market all the time. So, you know, you hold this one like a hamburger, you hold this one like a regular one, and it can get really confusing. So this uh, website is a good place to go. So it's www.use-inhalers.com. And what I really like about it um, is you can click on the specific inhaler and it will show you um, a teaching video. So it's great to use. You can use it with patients and it comes in multiple languages. Definitely this is a gem. So go look Mm -hmm. it up. This is a good one. So how many inhalers can you think of? So we've got the discus, we've got the handy handyhaler. What else do we have? Oh, my goodness just, gracious. Like I'm a like, million of them. Twist yeah, hailer, the auto so hailer, flex hailer. Good grief. You could stay up night just naming them all. And what about the turbo hailer? That sounds like, woo, that's a high-tech one. I think don't light any matches is what I'm thinking around the turbo hailer. That's what I think. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that sounds, it sounds like a cartoon a character. A wise course of action. Well, I think we should talk about magic mushrooms for a few minutes. I am just absolutely 
um, intrigued by the use of psilocybin. Uh, so two big trials came out uh, recently, uh, the latter part of 2016, psilocybin producing substantial and sustained decreases in depression and, and anxiety in patients with life-threatening cancer, a randomized double-blind trial that was in the Journal of Psychopharmacology. And then we also had rapid and sustained symptom reduction following psilocybin treatment for anxiety and depression in patients with life-threatening cancer, also in the same journal. So the same study group has done it at different settings. So what is psilocybin? It's, it's a hallucinogenic drug. So these two different randomized controlled trials were looking at exactly that, depression and anxiety. So kind of the existential angst that comes along with late-stage and high-risk cancers. And the study one, they used either psilocybin, 0.3 milligrams per kilo, or 250 milligrams of niacin. So the patient was, felt a little something and they weren't quite sure what was going on. Then they crossed over to the other treatment seven weeks later, and they found no serious psychological or medical adverse effects attributed to either substance. No pharmacologic interventions were necessary. The person goes into a room with a, a psychotherapist. Um, they, they swallow this capsule of psilocybin, this hallucinogenic mushroom, and they lie down on the, the couch with headphones and an eye mask on, and they say that these images kind of shoot by. Um, and what are the results that we see? Significant reductions in anxiety and depression, and an anxiolytic and antidepressant response rate seen immediately after psilocybin and sustained for 26 weeks. There were some transient side effects, such as an increase in blood pressure and heart rate, headache and nausea, and a little bit of transient nausea. Uh, but I think this is pretty interesting. Study two, same sort of thing, two sessions of the same treatment, separated by five weeks, looking at mood, attitudes, behaviors, depression, and anxiety. No significant adverse effects on the response rate. Holy moly, 80% with overall symptom remission at six months, about 60% for depression and anxiety. So how does this work? It sounds like a magic bean to me. Uh, they're hypothesizing the alterations of consciousness are reported through activation of the serotonin receptors, which could interrupt the circuitry of self-absorbed thinking. I, I do kind of enjoy self-absorbed thinking. How about you? I'm not sure I'd want to interrupt that, actually. <laughs> I, yeah, leave me be. I, I'm pretty happy with that. But anyway, this is highly prevalent in people who are profoundly depressed. Um, so this may be something of therapeutic value. So I think it's very interesting. Um, when, you so read the descriptions of, when you read the descriptions of what people explain, it's, it does sound fairly magical, I, I have it to It does. So the line forms behind me. Yeah, shooting stars. I mean, goodness, childlike yeah. and surrounded by childlike love. I mean, this is, sounds very, uh, very psychedelic. Love it. That's right. Okay, back to you. All right. So mine, um, taking a little bit of a different turn here. Um, we're going from the head down to the tail, and we're talking about amethyst. Um, so one of the warnings that came out, we know amethyst, alubiprostone, is used for uh, induced constipation, chronic idiopathic constipation as well, and irritable bowel syndrome. But syncope and hypotension have been reported in post-marketing surveillance. So usually it's with the 24 microgram BID dose, and it happens more early in therapy. Um, so when you stop it, the medication, it will resolve. Um, but one thing that you want to be careful of is a lot of our patients have hypertensive medications on board. So this is definitely something we'd want to make sure that we're paying attention to because our patients have uh, other risks for syncope and hypertension as well. So we don't need anything else, especially because 
I mean, Amatiza is not that useful of a laxative, what most of us think. Um, we're not going to get a whole lot of laxation out of it anyway, so we definitely don't want it to be causing harm if it's not going to do good. Um, and it's fairly expensive, so it's definitely something where you think of the number needed to treat. Um, 13 people would need to be treated in order for one to benefit, and it costs about $350 a month. So that's an expensive item to uh, give it a shot for those one out of 13 people, um, especially if there's a risk of um, hypotension on board. Boy, that better be a magical experience. Speaking of magical experiences, huh? Better be a moving experience. That's right. And the other tip, um, also having to do with lupoprostone, is for methadone-induced constipation. So it's interesting. Um, So the chloride channel activator, um, that the mechanism of lupoprostone, CIC2, and it promotes fluid secretion and then increased motility, which is how it works. And um, methadone is thought to interfere with these chloride channel receptors, and that's what's activated by lubiprostone. So it, it, it will not, even though its indication is for opioid-induced constipation, methadone does not count because their mechanisms are not, do not work together. So um, I think, you know, we, we love methadone, so this would be a hard one. Um, I'm not sure no, that I would not. take... Uh, Lubiprostone over methadone. (laughs) No contest in my book. (laughs) No, and I think um, my one of my favorite parts of this tip when we did it was the MC Hammer picture that said Luby can't touch this. So before I break out and break out into an MC Hammer song, you might want to move on. Let's save that for the next podcast, shall we? (laughs) Okay. Okay, my singing will come. All right, and I'm going to wrap up with one last tip in this podcast, which is the American Diabetes Association updated their guidelines for the treatment of diabetic neuropathy. And I'm only bringing this up because I hear time and time again for our patients admitted to hospice, I can't believe I had to be dying before somebody paid attention to the pain in my feet. So, of course, we do a magnificent job in assessing all the different pains a patient has, and often we are the first people to really take this seriously. So in these guidelines, they did talk about the overall prevention of diabetes, diabetic neuropathy, such as with type 1, working to control the blood glucose to prevent or delay the onset of the distal symmetric polyneuropathy, and both and cardiovascular autonomic neuropathy. And for type 2s, mostly is to prevent or slow um, the diabetic neuropathy as well, and using a multifactorial approach to target hyperglycemia. So with regard to the pain management, they have come out now and said pregabalin and duloxetine should be considered initial therapy, but we may consider gabapentin when you consider so socioeconomic status, comorbidities, and potential drug interactions. The tricyclic antidepressants are effective, but of course they're not FDA approved, but that wouldn't stop me. But you do have to be careful with the side effects. I do think probably pregabalin is the least offensive of those drugs we just talked about. Gabapentin, it seems like it takes forever and a day to titrate to where you're going because it's so sedating. Even I find it interesting that even though pregabalin and gabapentin cause the exact same side effects with the exact same prevalence, it's seems like you can get to where you're going with pregabalin in about a week, whereas gabapentin can take you literally a couple of months to get to where you're going. And a lot of our hospice patients don't have that luxury. And the TCAs, of course, be very careful with your heart block patients, and they're very strong anticholinergics and sedation and orthostatic hypotension. And in these guidelines, they said opioids are not recommended as first or second line. So let's make sure we maximize our coanalgesics. And speaking of duloxetine, I was very intrigued with this study done by two pharmacists at a VA 
where they did a head-to-head study evaluating the percentage of patients who were able to achieve a therapeutic dose of duloxetine versus venlafaxine for neuropathic pain, which they did not specify what kind of neuropathic pain it was, but they looked at the time it took to reach the therapeutic dose and any adverse effects associated with treatment. And they did this because they always used to reach for venlafaxine because it's a generic product, but now duloxetine is also available as a generic, so the cost is no longer a barrier. And they did find that the duloxetine significantly more patients were able to achieve a therapeutic dose. So 70.5% with duloxetine at 60 milligrams a day versus 54% with venlafaxine long-acting, uh, 150 to 225 milligrams a day. They got to the therapeutic dose much more quickly with duloxetine, about a week versus about a month with venlafaxine. So they hypothesized this is a very effective alternative for people who don't respond to venlafaxine. I've never been a big fan of venlafaxine. It seems like if a patient misses one dose, they all already seem to have those withdrawal symptoms and you've got to worry about the blood pressure and so forth. So I was very pleased to see this study. Uh, so we'll see mm-hmm. what happens with that. What do you think, Dr. Walker? Pretty cool tip, huh? Pretty cool tip. I like it. A good one to end on. There you go. Well, this is part one of what Kat and I are doing for speed dating. Um, We will be doing part two, so stay tuned for that. So I would like to thank Dr. Kat Walker for joining me today for this podcast, and I'd like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2017, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificates in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this awesome podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.